0: This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the UVA Office of Engagement. On September 5, 2009, a crowd packed into the Virginia Room at Alumni Hall to hear a talk on Designing Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village. Richard Guy Wilson, Commonwealth Professor of Architectural History, showed examples of Jefferson's original drawings and how his ideas were shaped through collaboration. Andrea Douglas, curator of the University of Virginia Art Museum, discussed the logistics of bringing a new exhibit on the origins of the Academical Village that opens at the museum later this month. This recording is introduced by Tom Falders, the president of the UVA Alumni Association.
1: First of all, welcome to Alumni Hall. And thank you for joining us for what is the fourth full season of More Than the Score. But we actually did one a year earlier. So we claim five years. It's it's fuzzy math. You'll get it. You're in for a real treat today. For those of you particularly historians, uh, many, many of you know Richard Guy Wilson. Um, he is um, the Commonwealth Professor Chair for Architectural History here at the university, but he doesn't stop there, of course. He's a frequent lecturer at many universities, museums and professional groups, and he's the voice of the television, he's a television commentator for American Castles, American Experiences, and he does a number of other things with the History Channel. He's also widely published, with many articles and 16 books, and I understand you have a new one coming out. Um, He's served as lead curator for a number of museums, and uh, curator and advisor for a number of museums, including the Brooklyn Museum, Smithsonian American Art, the High Museum, Metropolitan, National Academy of Design, and others, including, of course, our own University Museum. He's received the University of Virginia's Outstanding Professor Award in 2001 and 2007, and he was a Thomas Jefferson Fellow at the Cambridge University in England. So let me ask Professor Wilson to join us to talk about Mr. Jefferson's academic village.
0: Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, I'm very honored to be here and delighted to come and talk about something which is dear to my heart and taken a lot of time, too. Uh, The exhibit, which you see, this is the catalog cover, uh, or the book. Uh, My understanding is that it is residing, uh, several thousand copies of it are residing maybe about a quarter of a mile from here in a warehouse. I have not seen it. It just arrived the day before yesterday from China, uh, from the printing in China, but will be available uh, this coming week. Uh, and what it is, um, as you can see, it's a revised edition. Uh, this is a exhibit that I was involved with back in 1993 on the 250th anniversary of You-Know-Whose Birth. Uh, and uh, we decided to redo the exhibit. It was a very popular exhibit to redo the exhibit and uh, the book uh, for this year. And so uh, what you have is a chance to uh, see this. The exhibit is going to be opening a week from today uh, at the Bailey Building of the University Art Museum, which I assume you all know, Uh, and indeed if you go over there you will see this sort of activity taking place right now. Well, you can't go over there because uh, it's closed, Uh, but we are in the middle of uh, the installation of the exhibit. Uh, and I do want to note that uh, something like this is not just the product of me uh, or a couple of names that do get associated with it. It's the product of many, many individuals uh, over many, many, many years. Uh, and while this is very immediate, uh, still at the same time, we also ought to uh, recognize that some of the things you're going to be seeing in the exhibit, it's really rather extraordinary that they survive. Think back to October, 1895, and a little event that took place on the lawn. And that we have these drawings, that we have this material, is really rather extraordinary. Uh, And that there are also, I should note, that there are uh, many other historians uh, who have been involved with this over the years, and I certainly want to acknowledge, uh, some of you may recognize the name Sidney Fisk Kimball. Uh, Mr. Kimball designed the big building right across the street, Memorial Gym, uh, and he is really the first scholar of Thomas Jefferson's architecture and uh, founded the architecture program here uh, at the university. Uh, but in any event, uh, this is what's going on over there, it been going on over there uh, the past week. Uh, at the same time, and to um, make a pitch for something else, uh, we have another exhibit that will be opening on uh, September 14th, over at uh, the Harrison Small Special Collections Library, which is there on the left. Uh, another exhibit that I have done, uh, which takes the story of the university's architecture from 1826 up to tomorrow, uh, we hope, uh, and what has happened to the university uh, in those ensuing years. And this is an exhibit that was going to be showing original architectural drawings. Uh, Part of the reason for it is that this year is the 100th anniversary of Cars Hill, of uh, the President's House. was completed and first occupied by uh, President Alderman uh, back in 1909. Uh, that is a drawing uh, for it right there. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we decided to do so much focus on architecture. In this other exhibit, and I really urge you to go take a look at it, uh, you will see things that, well, aren't particularly, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, For instance, on the right, this is Brooks Hall, uh, the original uh, Natural History Museum here at the university, uh, which, as you know, uh, stands uh, a little bit east uh, of the rotunda. And uh, we also take up things which, um, well, for instance, this rather ungainly annex uh, to the rotunda, uh, why this happened. Uh, And in addition to that, in the exhibit, we're going to have a variety of things. Well, there's uh, Cabell Hall, or now Old Cabell Hall, uh, designed by the New York firm of McKim, Mead, and White Architects. Uh, They were also the architects uh, of Cars Hill. And as I say, we come right down to the present. Uh, This is a sketch by uh, W.G. Clark, uh, who teaches in the architecture program. And this is a sketch for the recent additions, opened about a year ago, uh, to Campbell Hall, uh, to the architecture school. So say we're going to be covering uh, a wide range uh, of other things, um, including landscape uh, in this other exhibit, which is at the Harrison Small. Again it opens on the 14th uh, of this month and will be up through graduation. So it will be up for about nine, ten months and uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a new look at an area of the university that we have not focused on so much because, of course, this is our legacy. This is what we are known for, uh, is uh, the academical uh, village. Uh, And indeed, uh, it's rather interesting. I was just noticing uh, just a few minutes ago out here in the hall uh, that back in 1937, uh, Life Magazine, brand new Life Magazine, uh, did an article on the most beautiful university campus in America, which was uh, the University of Virginia. Um, I assume that Most of you have some sort of acquaintance with this, so I don't need to explain, which uh, sometimes I have to do to other audiences. uh, That the scheme that we uh, see here, of of course the uh, of of course of the lawn uh, and of the flanking pavilions and the dormitory rooms, the gardens that are behind, and then the ranges and the hotels which are located out here, and of course capping the whole thing, uh, the rotunda. Uh, and it is, it's a very iconic uh, view. Uh, on the right, this is a, about um, 1822, uh, a plan done by uh, John Nielsen, uh, who was one of Jefferson's master craftsmen, and indeed we might say, I think today, an architect in his own right, uh, who did this. It was ultimately printed by a, an engraver by the name of Maverick, uh, and hence it's known sometimes as the Maverick, uh, uh, sometimes known as the Maverick plant. Uh, This is what we all think of. This is what we all think of. This is what we all know. And one of the things that we are attempting to try and do in the exhibit is to show that this is the product of a very long process. That the university, the way that we know it today, didn't start out this way at all in Jefferson's mind. Uh, Indeed, it is something that evolved over time, and that's one of the things that we're attempting to try and do uh, in the exhibit. There's a number of different themes that are in it, and I'm not going to try and uh, outline every one of them. Uh, Here, I've only got about 25 minutes, um, and the exhibit um, is a little bit more complicated than 25 minutes, Uh, but one of the things that we do take a look at, of course, is what preceded it. Uh, What were some of the origins, some of the sources? All architecture is to some degree autobiographical, just as all art is, to some degree, has something of us in it. Now, it may not have very much, um, it may be very abstract, uh, but there is something that is personal in every work of art, whether it's a poetry, whether it's a novel, whether it's a painting, or whether it's architecture. And I think that this can be said very much about the University of Virginia. Because this is where, of course, Jefferson attended his, had his collegiate experience between 1760 and 1763. I assume you've all been to Williamsburg. Does anybody dare not say they've never been to Williamsburg? <laughs> Uh, but, of course, uh, this is the Wren building that sits at the end of the Duke of Gloucester Street. The other end is the um, uh, the Capitol or the old Capitol, the colonial capital. Uh, and it is in this building, uh, originally put up in the 1690s. Uh, this is very much a reconstruction uh, of the 1930s uh, and of Rockefeller money. Uh, but the central building there, the Wren building, this is where, when Jefferson attended, all... 40 approximately young, I should say, white males, uh, and their faculty who were all men of the cloth. This was an Anglican institution or today Episcopal Church institution, as all institutions of higher learning were in this country, were <coughs> controlled in some way with by a church. This is where they all lived. This is where they took classes. This is where they slept. Um, where they maybe studied, uh, where they ate. Uh, descriptions of life here, well, one of the professors, man of the cloth, uh, loved nothing more than getting the young guys a little liquored up and leading them in charges against the townspeople. Uh, the descriptions of life there are what, will later on tonight, Rugby Road will be a little bit like. Um,
1: uh,
0: In other words, an animal house. Uh, And um, I bring this up because if you think about this, one single large building and everybody in it, and then you think about the University of Virginia, and you begin to see he's reacting very much against what this was here. And Jefferson becomes, over time, As some of you may know, that while he was governor in 1779, uh, he proposes to the state legislature uh, that the state ought to take on the education of the populace, and he sets up a three tiered system uh, primary, what we call the primary level, a secondary level, and then uh, the upper level, um, a a college. Um, uh, He proposes the state legislature in 1779, but the state legislature then it's not much different than the state legislature today. Of course, did nothing whatsoever um, about it. Uh, but Jefferson does become known as a uh, becomes known as an education bug, uh, and there's a long series of letters that are over the years and so forth, where people write in from uh, Ohio, from Tennessee, and so forth, and say, uh, "We're going to start a school. What do you recommend?" Avoid a single large building. They are injurious to health and to the welfare of the student. Much better, a series of rooms spread out with individual buildings for the teacher or the professor, depending on what level that we're talking about, connected together by a covered, uh, connected together by a covered walkway. Uh, uh, I Just to uh, note, of course, I think you all know, and I'm, I can't go into this, that uh, Jefferson is an architectural bug of the first order. Uh, that's Monticello I uh, that he originally constructed up in the mountaintop, and then took down to construct what we know today as Monticello II. I'm showing you in the left, uh, this is a drawing that he did for actually for the expansion of the College of William and Mary, uh, where there's a little controversy on the date of it. Uh, this is the front today. Uh, and what he attempts is to sort of enclose it into a quadrangle uh, and this may have been uh, done about 1773, 1774, as I say, there's a little bit of controversy uh, on that. But as I say, Jefferson's an architectural bug. Uh, there are literally hundreds of drawings by Jefferson for all sorts of things, from garden temples to his drapes. Wherever Jefferson moved, whether it was in Paris, New York, a Secretary of State in the Washington administration, Philadelphia, writing the Declaration of Independence, he remodeled his quarters. Even though he doesn't own them, he remodels them. (laughs) What does that tell you? Well, obsessive maybe, Uh, but also it says that he is passionate about his surroundings and the way it is that he lives. And the way that he gets a lot of his ideas, Some of them do come from travel. He spends uh, five years uh, in Europe, uh, principally in in, in France and in Paris uh, as the American ambassador uh, between 1784 to 1789, uh, but also gets his ideas out of books such as this. This is one of his most favorite. Here are some more books. Uh, And it's out of books like this that he does learn a lot about architecture, about the hierarchy of the orders. There is a hierarchy in this. And if you think about the lawn for a minute, It's going to appear over there. Now, to come to what we're going to be seeing, also be seeing in the exhibit, you will have a chance to look at drawings that, as I say, are rather remarkable, that they survive. And you can also see ideas being worked out. For instance, this drawing right here is one side of a sheet of paper. And if you look down to this corner right down here, and You see, it's over there. It's the one side. It's two sides of a single sheet of paper, uh, and this is by Jefferson. Uh, and this brings up a very good point that uh, paper was not the disposable commodity it is today. It was a very. It was expensive. Paper was still an expensive sort of a thing, uh, and so you can see that he is, uh, in his own way, uh, attempting to make use uh, of, uh, uh, attempting to make use of things. In the case of this here. Uh, In uh, in 1812, a group of uh, individuals here in town, uh, one of which was a nephew of Jefferson, had uh, come up with an idea that they wanted to start a local academy. Uh, And they were holding a meeting in April 1814 downtown in the old Stone Tavern, which no longer exists but uh, is essentially on Market Street. Uh, There's a historic marker up there. Uh, They were holding a meeting in April uh, and uh, uh, one of them looked out the window and there he was riding by, hey, come, come on, get in here. Uh, and he came in, and of course the inevitable happened, he took it over. Uh, he took over, uh, took over the scheme. Uh, and what he does in the next couple of months is he comes up with this scheme here, uh, and it's labeled 257 yards in the center. And as you can see, these are the dormitory rooms, these are the pavilions, and it's around like this. And over here he's working out the dimensions and so forth on it. Uh, And then, as I say, on the other side of this, he has what we would call, uh, this is the other side, this is on graph paper and this is what he liked to use. He discovered this when he was in Paris uh, and uses this for dimensioning out uh, his drawings. Uh, And uh, what you have up here is the elevation or the facade of one of these pavilions for the teacher and then the facades for the dormitory rooms here down here this is the ground floor plan as you can see it's a covered walkway Uh, and then you have your rooms that are here with the fireplaces Uh, this right here ground floor this is the teaching space right here Uh, the student comes in uh, like right here Uh, this doorway right here Uh, goes upstairs to the second floor, and this is where the professor or the teacher, uh, in this case, is living. Uh, This right here, this is a walkway back to a potty that's right there, and there's also one that's back here. And this is the beginning point. And if you think about it, of course, this in comparison to what we have over there today, it points out that things happen, that there's evolution that happens, that this is an initial scheme. This is something that he's been floating around in his mind for years, and now he's putting it down. And, of course, this 257 yards here, 257 yards is what? How many football fields? That's the way we measure things, right, nowadays, right? Yeah, two and a half football fields. Okay, how far across is the lawn today? 180 6 to 190 feet from one side to the other. So the point is that from 257 yards, now this would have been great if these, if we had been located out in Iowa or someplace like that. Uh, no, but if, you know, had a big flat plain or were down in the Piedmont, uh, but, I'm excuse me, not the Piedmont, down in uh, uh, down the Tidewater. Uh, but up here in the Piedmont, this is, a little, uh, this is a little problematic. But this is, in other words, this is the idea that has been floating around. So my point is, is that you can see here, and this is, I think, one of the important things about exhibitions and so forth, that you can see how things occur. We also, you will be able to see that he asks for advice. For instance, this is a letter here uh, that he writes to Dr. Thornton down here, as dated up here, Monticello, May 9.17, Dear Sir, uh, Dr. William Thornton, as the first architect of the United States Capitol. He was the fellow who was the initial architect of the United States Capitol. He won a competition. He was a buddy of Jefferson. uh, And he was the architect of the United States Capitol up until 1807. Uh, In 1807, he'd had it working with Congress, and he quit. Um, That's not too, uh, uh, you can understand that. Uh, But in any event, here is Jefferson writing to him. And what he says in this letter is that we're beginning a university down here. Uh, would you give me some suggestions? Would you give me some suggestions? And here he writes, here's a sort of a rough sketch by Jefferson. It says grass and trees. And see, it's still this big open sort of a thing right here. In this letter, he says that he wants the fronts of the pavilions to be specimens for the architectural lectures, the architectural lectures. In other words, that he wants this to be a learning environment. The environment is much a part of the learning process as me blabbing away in the classroom. Thornton uh, writes back, uh, this is his drawing right here, uh, that he sends back, or his, it's actually a watercolor. We have this in the exhibit. And you can see, this is where the cornerstone is laid in uh, 1817, uh, that Jefferson is picked up on Thornton. Not quite exactly, not quite exactly. What Thornton suggested was that the central pavilion be this, and then the other eight pavilions be like this, flat-topped up here. Uh, but Jefferson picks up on this and, of course, modifies it. It's a different order that's up there, but this is the front, uh, front of pavilion number seven. Um, he also writes a letter off to this guy. Uh, Mr. Latrobe was English-born, though his mother actually was American. Uh, he had, uh, was an architect in England before he arrived in Norfolk uh, in 1795. Uh, he practiced in Richmond for a few years before making his way up to Philadelphia. Uh, he was, again, a buddy of Jefferson's. Uh, in 1807, when Fortness had it as architect of the U.S. Capitol, Jefferson appoints Latrobe. He's president at that point in time. He appoints Latrobe to be the second architect of the United States Capitol. Uh, Latrobe, this is a wonderful portrait here. Uh, he's a typical architect, round glasses and so forth, and very <laughs> self-confident, uh, etc. Uh, uh, Latrobe writes back this letter here. Now, you might be asking, why is Jefferson writing for advice? One of the reasons why he's writing for advice is that. In 1816, he sold his library to Congress, if you may remember. He sold some 6,300 and, don't quote me, 14 books or something like that to Congress. Now Jefferson was a bibliomaniac of the first order. Um, And he immediately went out and started buying books again, as bibliomaniacs do. Uh, But what he had done is he sold off most of his architectural library to Congress. And so he needed advice. Now, as I say, he immediately begins to buy these books back uh, and so forth, and we've got the accounts on them. But still what he's doing is he's writing to these guys to ask for help, Uh, which also, I think, shows a certain amount of confidence in his part uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I can, uh, I know what I want, but I need advice. And I think that that is something that, We all could learn uh, at times uh, when we're involved in projects. Anyway, Latrobe writes back uh, with this scheme here, and he suggests, well, why don't you put a domed building in the center? And if you look carefully, you can see this is written by a very very acidic ink, and so it bleeds, it's bled through the paper uh, over the years. Uh, So anyway, and uh, for instance, and this is something else, in the exhibit we have this drawing. Notice this, it's scratched out up there. You put it up on a red infrared light. It says Latrobe behind it. Even though this is Jefferson's drawing, <laughs> based on this, there's plenty of notes, and you can see down here. The other thing that's very interesting, Jefferson's drawing. Notice this is dotted line. Dotted line goes uh, He's encompassing a sphere. Now, it's something that I think is pretty today. We don't uh, pay much attention to, but there was very much this idea, an ideal of perfect geometrical forms. And so the idea was that we have a sphere, which is the most perfect of all forms, Uh, that would be encompassed inside, that would be encompassed inside. Uh, Does this mean here uh, that Latrobe is the architect? Well, yes and no. Still, Jefferson is the guy who's making the decisions. He does the drawing. Here is the section, and notice again, He's drawing in a sphere, this is Jefferson's section, there's the library up there, classroom and so forth down here. But what is very, very fascinating is this drawing is up at the Massachusetts Historical Society in the Jefferson collection up there. It's Jefferson. H of representatives, Senate, courts of justice, passage and stairs, In 1791, Jefferson made a proposal for the United States Capitol to Washington. Washington didn't accept it. They went on and got Thornton to be the architect, but this is his. What Latrobe is doing, which is something that, in a sense, we all like, is he's saying, well, you know, you had a great idea way back there. Here it is. Use it again, in a sense. He's giving back Jefferson because Jefferson had a dome bug if there ever was a guy who was, had a thing for domes. Uh, it is Jefferson. Uh, there is also an exhibit, and very, very briefly here just to show. Uh, there is, in the Jefferson drawings here, there is this drawing. Now, as you can see, it's a sort of weird thing. It's by Jefferson. There it is. There uh, it is. Uh, the rotunda up there, it's just one side of the lawn. He just has four pavilions in it. It's a long story about shifting numbers of pavilions and so forth and, and that type of thing, which I won't go into. Uh, but it's cut out. And, you know, for a long time, sort of scratched my head, or myself and my students scratched my head, what the heck? And then as we began to look around, we found this. Well, we shoved this in. But if you look at this, here's the pavilions, and then here are the ranges and hotels with the gardens down here. And then there's other drawings. So what he did was that he'd done this, and then there is some correspondence with Jefferson and a couple of the members of the Board of Visitors, and uh, in particular it was Cabell, uh, who said, you know, this is a sort of an awkward arrangement. So what does he do? He cuts it out, and there's actually a sequence of these as he tries out different schemes. Now, you might say, why? Well, of course, today with you know Xerox machines and all of that, or with digital, you don't have to do any of this stuff. But here he is. He's an 80-year-old individual that has broken both of his wrists doing these laborious drawings. Well, I'm not going to redo the drawing. I'll cut it out, and so forth, uh, and redo it this way. So again, you get to get investigate the methods of work. Uh, there are also the drawings for uh, the different pavilion fronts. Uh, these are on both sides. This is the graph side. Here is an elevation and the plans. On the back, if you look at these closely, he's figuring out the dimensions. He's figuring out how... somebody's got to figure out how many bricks you're going to have for something like this. Uh, The sources, for instance, Pavilion number two. Here he writes there the Ionic of Fortuna Virilis. This is a plate out of Palladio. Palladio is one I showed a cover a minute ago. is one of his favorite books. Uh, And you can see that he's adopting certain elements, certain elements of this for the front of this. This is very interesting. He laid out his drawing, he inked it in, and then I forgot the chimney. So he tapes on the chimney up here. (laughs) Uh,
1: Construction,
0: construction. This is something that we've really added to the exhibit this year. Uh, going into some of the drawings by Jefferson, this is a scheme for the, uh, uh, for the rafters, uh, for uh, uh, the rotunda. It was a wood truss type of a scheme. Uh, that's a plate out of a Frenchman by the name of Friart Art de Chambre, uh, who had done a book uh, about how you construct wooden domes. Uh, and indeed, all American domes, with the exception of the U.S. Capitol, were basically this wood truss type of domes back then. We just simply didn't have the technology to do it. Uh, Jefferson had owned the book, sold it to Congress, and there's a letter in which he writes to somebody says, you've got a copy of this. Will you please loan it to me? We need it for the university. Uh, and of course, there's a wood truss dome. But what is in particular And you will see, uh, we had some of this in the original, but we have added to this very, very extensively. We have a list now of about 400 individuals who worked on the construction. And in some cases, we can figure out what they did. As you can see here, I'm not going to show you all of these, uh, but this is something that is, in particular, uh, is extremely uh, important. And one of the things is, and as I say, we've got about 400 individuals here, I've only been able to locate a portrait of one of these individuals. That is it. Of this 400, their names just appear in the Proctor's records, being paid for doing this and that, and then they sort of just disappear. They just sort of disappear. And one of our hopes is, and we've set up a blog on this, uh, is that we might be able to discover a little bit more because, of course, this is essential in the construction of anything. Uh, and then we are, have tools that they might have used and so forth, of, uh, might have used for this. Um, anyway, these are just a couple, a few of the highlights and so forth uh, of it, uh, the way that these, this uh, rather incredible... Uh, ensemble uh, came into being, a product of many, many, many different years completed. And then, of course, uh, buildings, they're a lot like us. We age, uh, we change, Uh, institutions change, methods of instruction change, so forth. Um, And so there is the further history of the university, as seen in this view from the mid-1850s, of this big annex that was put on so forth. Uh, but what it does, I think, and does uh, point out, and of course this is what he specified, uh, Mr. Control, right to the very end. Um, this is what I want on my tombstone. This, nothing more. I think that if any of us have got to be, um, what, a governor, secretary of state, president, you might put that on your tombstone, but nope. Don't put that up there. This is what he wants there. And you can read it in a number of different ways, uh, two political statements um, and an institution or also an architectural statement. Thank you very much.
1: And the person bringing this exhibition to you is Andrea Douglas, who's been curator and collection of exhibitions at the University of Art Museum since 2004. She's done a lot of different exhibitions. I just wanted to say one thing. She's a consummate academic. She has four degrees, two of which are from the University of Virginia, so she should double who. So, Andrea, come on up.
2: Thank you all very much for coming to um, hear Richard and I talk about this exhibition. It is with all exhibitions in the museum, as Richard um, indicated, a... Um, labor of several people and with all exhibitions of this size and I'd like to let you know that this exhibition has over a hundred objects in it and so my role today is to sort of give you a sense of how an exhibition of this size gets into this museum and also to say um that it is a question you know we're looking at the Academical Village and it's an exhibition about architecture but we also talk have to talk about the University's Art Museum and its architecture because prior to bringing this exhibition, we completed a renovation project. And a renovation project that in some ways allowed us to be able to get the kinds of loans um, that we were able to garner for this exhibition. The museum for a very long time, until August 14th, and I want to reiterate this date, August 14th, because we finished our construction of or renovation of the museum on the 14th and we're opening this exhibition one month later almost which is a feat in and of itself because um, part of bringing an exhibition like this to the museum has a lot to do with design and so you figure you have a month to open it you count back you've got two weeks to install it so essentially we're doing this all in 10 days so 100 objects, over 100 objects in 10 days, and an entire museum thereafter. And I'll show you some images of the other shows that are also going to open on um, the 12th of September. Um, but so we, for a very long time, I started to say that the museum had an issue with its climates. And this is kind of a behind-the-scenes conversation. It's going to be a little dry, this part of it, I say. An issue with its climates. Um, We live in Virginia, and so humidity levels at any time of the year can vary from season to season. And um, to bring exhibitions such as this, particularly with the number of paper, pieces of paper in that, and the age of these pieces of paper beginning in, you know, 1822 is the date on this drawing here, this Nielsen drawing here, 1822, you really need to have stable climates. You really need to know that the material that you bring in to the museum will be protected in that way. And so while we're also talking about the Academical Village, we're talking about a construction project or a renovation project that will allow for this kind of um, installation. So what we did was we um, created a uh, climate system, completely climatized. And why that's important is when you say to the National Gallery or to the New York Historical Society where this particular portrait of Jefferson comes from, we'd like to borrow your portrait. They say to us, why? Why should we lend it to you? You know, This is a really important portrait by Rembrandt Peel from 1805. It's one of the most well-known portraits of Thomas Jefferson. It's almost the signature portrait of the aging Jefferson. Why should we let you have it? Well, our response has to be, because we have perfect climate. (laughs) And then they say, prove it. So we have to go and do all of these readings, months and months and months, and if there is a fluctuation, plus or minus the readings that they give you, they say no. The University of Virginia will say no. Monticello definitely will say no. The renovation of the museum was a vital thing. This, this, um, Richard told you that the exhibition was first um, installed in the museum in 1993. So, you know, these things are possible. The museum, as I said, has had climate control, but now we have an entire building of climate control. But how does one present an exhibition in uh, 2010? What are the ideas that have to go in? How do you present this material in a way that's fresh? How do you um, expand the knowledge? Because obviously our hope is to create a a situation wherein we are able to, as a a university, expand the knowledge of the information that we present. Mm -hmm. And so Richard did mention this idea of the blog. And that's one of the things that I'd like to invite you all to to take a look at because we launched that blog in February in the hope of advancing the scholarship and also giving people an opportunity to talk about the exhibition and talk about their experiences on the lawn, talk about um, other buildings that they've seen that are um, reminiscent of the rotunda, reminiscent of other buildings on the lawn. So those were the issues some of the issues that we had to contend with beginning in 2005. An exhibition of this size, we planned for that easily four years in advance. So we started this conversation in 2005. Um, We started the conversation so that we could really make sure that we could get the kinds of loans that we needed for the exhibition. Um, What happened in 2009? Presidential election. Difficult to get loans because of a presidential election, but we were able to do that. So that's why you have to go and do these very long periods of planning because there are there is competition. You know, I mean, a portrait of Jefferson is a very important portrait during an election year. So you start planning for these things very early on. We have to thank the president's office for this exhibition. Um, he provided the ma- that, that office provided the major funding for the exhibition. We have to thank the provost office for it. Um, they provided yet another major funding for it. This exhibition, um, because of the level of design, and you saw some of the um, images of that as uh, Richard went through, the level of design in this exhibition demands that we do a lot of work prior to the opening of the exhibition in order to get Um, It in. Unfortunately, I'm unable to invite you all over to the museum today, so this is really a plug to get you all to come back over and over and over again, because it's not an exhibition that you can just come through one time. There is so much to see, there's so much looking to do. Richard talked about the way that it describes the mind of Jefferson, and I think it does that in multiple ways. It talks about the sources, where he was getting his information from, all the things that he was looking at to think about how to create this design. And that alone, easily, is a half hour. And that's only one section of the exhibition. And so in the design, what we've done is really done a very, I would have to say, a very nice job of moving you through, and giving you opportunities and moments for contemplation and for thought. And so um, when you come back next Saturday, which I'm sure you all will, um, those are the things that you can anticipate. So I say bring good clothes, bring good shoes, plan some time, um, and then, you know, come back, have have lunch, come back, take a little bit more look. It is also um, something that we were thinking, well, how do we expand again, going back to this notion of expansion, how do we (coughs) <coughs> excuse me, bring to life something that um, has, you know, in some ways could be only considered some ways in the abstract. Yes, you have the material in front of you, but there is a certain level of abstraction involved in your thinking about this. Well, what we're also doing is premiering Judith Shayton's film called Rotunda. And Judith Shayton is the William Kennan Jr. Professor of Music at the university. And she is also a composer and a sound artist. And what she has done is created a film that covers the life on the lawn for a year. She mounted a camera on Cabell Hall and recorded the sounds and the activities of the rotunda over the course of a year. And when she presents it to you, she presents it to you as a day in the life Of the lawn and it's amazing how many things happen on the lawn. (laughs) It's unbelievable (laughs) what happens on the lawn. So you know you see the construction for graduation, you see the takedown, you see all of the clubs that do their things on the lawn, you see people playing frisbee on the lawn. And so in many ways what the exhibition does is really bring to life and really marry very nicely the historical lawn and the historical um, uh, university to the university today. We are also thinking about, in relationship to the Academical Village, how we talk about Edgar Allan Poe. We're celebrating this year another anniversary and it's the 200th anniversary of Poe's birth and for those of you who were Here, last um, spring, Um, the library did a very extensive exhibition on Poe and Jefferson's relationship to Poe is that Poe is one of the first people to live on the lawn. So we're doing an exhibition that is of um, modern artists who are um, inspired by Poe's writings. And so the in- exhibition includes, for instance, a portrait of Poe by Félix Vallotton, which is this portrait here on the, the left. But a portrait of um, Vallotton there, and in the middle, a portrait, a self-portrait by Alice Neel um, after Poe's um, The House of Usher. And this is a portrait that is in an artist book that was produced posthumously. And then a um, lithograph by, um, Olondon Redon, um, also from the 19th century, that really expands the ideas of Poe and gives you a sense of the influence of Poe on, on modern, on modern art. And that will be in the gallery just adjacent to the Academical Village. So, once you've spent two or three days looking at the Academical Village, and you've come back for that fourth visit, fourth football game, you can then go into the expanding eye and um, experience that exhibition. We're also doing an exhibition of abstract photography. This is one that I'm curating, and it's an exhibition from, of work from 1970 through the present. And what you're looking at on the left is a work by John Baldessari, and on the right a work by Wolf, um, Wolfgang Tillmans. Um, from 2006. And so this exhibition gives a broad view of abstract photography and explains what is abstract photography and why that's different from fine art photography. And we're also focusing on our permanent collection. Um, this is a work from, by Frank Stella on the left and then Frederick Church on the right. And Church also has a relationship to Jefferson, because this is the a portrait of, image of the natural bridge. Um, um, we are working with uh, the Kluge Roo to bring some of their larger objects to the museum so that people get an opportunity to see this very important collection. It's one of the largest, important, largest collections of Aboriginal art in the world. And this is housed at the university. Um, Do you all know where Kluge Rue is? Okay, good. Because that's yet another thing you can do on your seventh visit. (laughs) (laughs) And on the left is a a work by Willard um, Majette. It's a very large, 170-inch painting from 1973. And then some works from our works on paper collection. But I'm showing all of these things to say that, you know, and how I'm going to tie this all back to um, the Academical Village, to say that one of the things that we're focusing on in the museum in putting this exhibition together with all of the other exhibitions and where I began with a discussion of the building, is to say that we are trying to describe the notion of the living architecture. That the building that all of these works reside in, that the exhibition resides in, is a matter of a kind of living architecture. And that when you walk through Jefferson, the Academical Village, that, and are able to very much understand through issues of design, um, issues that allow you to physically understand the, the thinking behind the development of the lawn, and then further extrapolate that to the thinking behind the development of an exhibition, and further extrapolate that to the building where these um, materials reside, you get a very clear sense of a kind of architectural program at the university and the way in which um, things move from one idea out to another. Um, the exhibition, as it, it as it's, is situated, as I say, it's a hundred objects. It includes tools, so you get a very clear sense of the objects. Richard talked a lot about the paper. There is the actual paper in the exhibition that we borrowed from Monticello. There are the portraits that we have um, taken from our own collection and from Collections from the New York Historical Society, the um, National Gallery, from the Willard Clock Museum. All again, to reiterate the ability to do those kinds of things. Um, There is a sense of the original governance of the museum, of the university, portraits of the Board of Visitors. And then finally, the notion of the lawn itself, the living lawn, the life of the lawn. And I think as we're thinking about the building and itself, this is the kind of ideas that we're trying to put across this year. Um, I've provided for you the museum's calendar that describes all of the things that we're offering. Um, On Saturdays beginning in October, we will be offering, October 17th, we'll be offering specific lectures associated with the exhibition by scholars around the university. Richard will be doing one, of course, but uh, the director of the museum, who is a Palladius scholar, will also be doing one. And we'll have other people from Monticello also um, giving lectures about the exhibition. So there's opportunity for consistent and constant learning um, through uh, the programs that we're offering. And if you're here on the 13th of October, Richard will also be doing yet another lecture about a lunchtime talk, So you can bring your lunch and come to the museum and hear him discuss very specific ideas about the exhibition. So, thank you. We have time for
0: a question and answer. The question is about uh, Jefferson in Europe, right, and his involvement over there. Um, it's too bad you asked that question, because that's what I'm writing a book on. So <laughs>
1: we've
0: got a couple of days here. Um, uh, there actually is a very good book on Jefferson in Europe uh, by George Shackelford, who actually is an alum of this institution, who taught at VPI for many, many years, uh, called Jefferson's Travels in Europe. Uh, and George's book is very good, but it doesn't go into the architectural level uh, that I am, I am interested in. He uh traveled extensively, uh, while he was in Europe. He was primarily he was the uh what we call today the ambassador to the court of Louis the Sixteenth. And he was right there at the edge of the re- revolution was taking place. Uh Jefferson being an obsessive type of an individual, uh records his expenditures in every darn thing. Uh you know, I sometimes joke that he, he he's Lists everything, but he never bothered to balance his checkbook in the end. You know, um, and if you know, he had financial problems. Uh, but we do know uh, all of his travels, um, and it's a wonderful project for me because it gives me excuse to run around Europe and so forth and follow him. Uh, he went to England. I uh, visited England three times. Uh, he went down to the south of France twice. Uh, he went to northern Italy once. He went up into the Rhineland. Uh, as well as, uh, of course, spending tremendous amounts of time in, uh, in Paris. And uh, he bought books, architecture books. Uh, he bought tools, for instance, when he was in London. Now that's where he bought some of his tools that were shipped back. He bought in London the pantograph, which is a copying machine. He bought a harpsichord uh, in London. Um, so we do know a fair amount of, of things. Uh, the issue is, is uh, you know, he rolls down the street, uh, what does he see? I think I know what he sees, but anyway. But the point is, is I'm trying to trace down what are some of his experiences. So. Yes, sir? Of the 100 items that are going to be in the exhibit, how many are owned by the university? The majority. The majority. The question was, of the hundred I- 100 items in the exhibit, how many are owned by the uh, university? We own a significant amount of the pieces of paper. Uh, of the drawings. There are a few. There is one which I did not show you, a very wonderful drawing. Perhaps the last drawing that Jefferson really ever did in his life, he did it it, uh, for Simon Willard who was a major clockmaker in Boston. And uh, it's an elevation of the rotunda with the clock in it that he sent up to Mr. Willard to have the clock made. The clock was not installed after Jefferson's death. Uh, And the drawing, Uh, uh, wound up in Willard's collection. And um, I should note parenthetically, Willard was an architect in his own right. He did the Bunker Hill Monument in Boston. But there's the Willard Clock Museum out in Grafton, Massachusetts, in the center part of the state. And um, it's a wonderful place to visit because if you visit at, say, 11 o'clock, all of the bells are going off. Um, But uh, they owned this drawing, and we were able to get that from them. Uh, and we got a couple things from uh, the Massachusetts Historical Society, um, the Virginia Historical Society, um, but we own a good portion of what we have in the exhibit. One more question, sir?
2: Sure. Yes, ma'am. Uh, did Jefferson ever go to Rome?
0: No, he did not. That is one of the great puzzles. Why he didn't go to Rome? He was sick, he claimed. But anyway. All right. Uh, one more.
1: <laughs> um, it, it seems to me
2: that Jefferson very much saw his surroundings as all of stuff. Art, I mean, uh, landscaping at Monticello was a very important thing, but I've seen very little about any of that
0: about the university. Is, is there stuff in the So we talk about it, and there is some things in the exhibition, and um, the, uh, uh, of course he intended that there be grass and trees on the lawn. Uh, we do know uh, that the university purchased a significant amount of plants, plant specimens just prior to Jefferson's death. There was an intention for a botanical garden about right where we are standing. He wanted to put a botanical garden here. But He passed away, and nothing happened. Uh, But no, there is the landscaping. You're right, it's a very, very important element.
1: Yes, sir? Was it customary to put the library up in the dome
0: like that? Was that new? Yes, it is new. I didn't want to... uh, Jefferson can be argued changes the American or... Campuses worldwide. He makes the library the central focus. You go to Yale, to Harvard, to Princeton. What's the central focus? A chapel. They were all all American institutions of Harvard. We're not the first public university. South Carolina and North Carolina predate us. They had established public institutions down there, but uh, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, in Colombia, uh, it was the Baptists. Uh, where's UNC located? Okay, gives it away right there. Uh, the Presbyterians uh, in charge there. Uh, he changes that to the library is the central focus, and I think the argument can be made. Uh, I mean, today you look at most university catalogs; the library is very frequently the cover. I mean, that's the important thing, and I think that argument can be made that he really does change this. And yes, putting the library up there, 60, he drew up the list of the volumes that he wanted up there. It was great, wonderful. Um, uh, The problem was, what happens when you get, he had 6,300, what happens you get 10,000? 15,000? 20,000? 30,000? because how could he foresee that right at that point in time there was a big revolution taking place in the production of paper and in printing and not that you got the toss away book that we have today but you all of a sudden got plethora of books being produced that just begin in the 1820s. I mean, you know, we think of Gutenberg in the Bible, but there's a big revolution in the early, uh, about 1820s, 1830s, as far as book publishing that changes the entire complexion, and all of a sudden, what do you do? You've got this confined space, Uh you've got a little problem there. And so uh, a circle is never a very good idea for a library, uh, because you can be guaranteed that any library that you complete is outmoded by the second that it's done.
2: For our speakers, on behalf of the Alumni Association and the Office of Engagement, we'd like to thank them for coming out and spending the morning with us and sharing their expertise.